Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and this is episode number 475. As part of our Smithsonian Associates Healthy Living series, we've got two great interviews for you back to back. First up is Dr. Anthony Fauci. As head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Dr. Anthony Fauci knows his way around the intricacies of complicated viruses. Part two of this interview is with actor Alan Alda, host of the Clear and Vivid podcast and co-founder of the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. He knows his way around sharing tough scientific topics in clear and engaging ways. Together, they are a perfect pairing to parse the intricacies of the virus that has held us in sway since March. Join me first for Dr. Fauci today, and then stay tuned for part two with Alan Alda and join both of them for an evening of thoughtful, informative discussion on the topic gripping the country at Smithsonian Associates, September 23rd, 2020. There's also an opportunity for Q&A following the conversation. So how can public health officials gain the trust of Americans who are skeptical of interventions like masks to fight the coronavirus effectively? Dr. Anthony Fauci is with us today, and he'll be answering that question along with many others in a fascinating conversation. He's the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the NIH and a member of President Trump's Coronavirus Task Force. Please join me in welcoming via internet phone to the Not Old Better Show, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Anthony Fauci, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much for having me. It's always a pleasure to be with you. It's so good to talk to you again. Of course, we've talked to you previously, but I, you know, I want to start before we jump into everything COVID. How are you doing? How's your family? Everybody staying healthy? We, we certainly hope for that, and we know how hard you're working. Thank you, by the way, for all you're doing, but we wish you the best and the best health. Everything good? Yeah, everything's good. You know, um, this is a tough situation that we're in. It, it's, um, it's, you know, it's nonstop seven days a week. It's, a, it's, it's stressful, but I have a, my wife is extraordinarily supportive of this. As you probably know, in the politicization of all of this and the extreme divisiveness that we have in society, when I talk about things that are pure public health issues, and I've never ever had any political aspects of anything I say, it's all public health. And yet uh, there is such extremes in our society that even some of the messages that I give in public health have led to people who have gone so far as to make serious threats against me, as well as harassments of my family, including my wife and my children, which I find is so reflective of, of the kinds of divisiveness we have in society. I wish we all could appreciate that we're dealing with a historic pandemic and we're all in it together and public health measures are gonna get us out of it together with scientific advances like a vaccine. So when we talk about public health measures, the fact that that triggers such animosity against the people who are talking about it, like myself, leading to things like threats uh, is just uh, is very, I would say, disturbing in the sense of what it's reflecting about what's going on in society. I'm aware. And I my heart just goes out to you and your family because. We know how hard you are working. We value so much what you are doing. Again, it is always a pleasure to speak with you. You're so reassuring, too. This has been a particularly difficult week. We're talking on Friday afternoon. I know your advice to us all is not to despair, and we'll get beyond this. So maybe 
take a minute more and reassure us, please. (laughs) But we're not helpless here either, are we? You know, what happens to us is in our hands, individual people pulling together, which leads ultimately to pulling together as a community and then again as a country. Right now, we don't have a vaccine, but we do have within our power to do some relatively simple public health measures at the same time as carefully and prudently opening up the economy and trying to get back to some degree of normal. I believe, and it's just realistic, that we're not gonna get back to a full manifestation of normality until we get a vaccine that's a safe and effective vaccine. But we can approach getting back to some degree of opening up the country in a way that we get the economy back, that we can start doing some of the things we enjoy at the same time as adhering to the fundamental principles of public health, you know, wearing a mask, keeping physical distance, avoiding crowds, washing hands, trying now that the season still is mild of doing things much more outdoors than indoors. And when we have to go indoors in the fall and the winter, to do it with a degree of caution in the sense of where appropriate wearing a mask and not congregating together in crowded places indoor, if we can do that, we know from experience that that not only prevents surges of infection, it also can turn around the surges that we've seen when people have actually not abided by the fundamental principles. This is going to end. We're going to get through this. We will. We will get back to a state that we had before COVID hit this planet so terribly. But the only way we're going to do it is if we work together. And I, I keep saying, and it's, it's true, people should not consider prudent public health measures as the obstacle to opening the economy and opening the country. They should look upon it as the gateway or a vehicle to safely opening up the economy. So, I mean, I've been talking about that for a long time, and I will continue to talk about it because it's true. We can do it. Our fate is in our own hands, but we've got to pull together as a country uh, and realize that we have a responsibility not only for ourselves as individuals, but we do have a societal responsibility that even though we might be a young person, and if you look at the new infection rates right now, they're predominantly among the 19 to 25-year-olds. And you know that's understandable in some respects because people feel they might be invulnerable because many, most of the young people who are young and healthy can get infected. Many of them have no symptoms at all, and many of them have very mild symptoms that don't really interfere with anything. Even though you feel that the chances of you are getting seriously uh, impacted by an infection, that you could therefore say, so I'm gonna do a kind of behavior which would even put me at risk for for getting infection, but who cares, I'm in a vacuum, I'm not really negatively impacting or hurting anybody. That's not so, because the fact that you do get infected means that even though you might be without symptoms, you're propagating the outbreak. So you might inadvertently, and I would use the word even innocently, infect someone else who might infect someone else. 
And then the next thing you know, a vulnerable person, an elderly person, a person with an underlying condition gets infected. And not only has a person been hurt, but you've helped to propagate the outbreak. And that's the reason why we all have to pitch in on trying to end this. I do agree with you that it is so important to listen to science and and to be mindful of some of these things like wearing masks. This is a complex virus. Remind us about how complex it is, because in my research, uh, in anticipation of our chat today, I read about heart disease, inflammation of the heart muscle, studies about potential brain damage. Tell us a little bit about what you're learning. What's new about the health effects of this disease? You know, I'm glad you asked that question because it's a work in progress in that as we evolve and learn more and more about the disease, we have to maintain a degree of humility and modesty to admit that what we know now is much more than what we knew a month or two or three ago. So for example, what we're learning that people who get infected, even those who might just not necessarily have serious disease requiring hospitalization or intensive care, but someone who's got infected and is sick enough to stay home for several days or weeks or more, that when they recover, and by recover we mean their virus is now gone, they no longer are infective and they are virologically free, many of them, and we're learning more and more, have a persistence of symptomatology that might last for weeks and even months, which means they are not sick in bed, but they don't feel right. They have myalgias, they have fatigue, they have sleeplessness, and many of them uh, report what they refer to as brain fog. In other words, they have very difficulty concentrating. So they're not themselves yet for a period of time, measured in weeks and sometimes months, and who knows, because we've only been in this for several months, for how long that lasts. Then there's another group that you mentioned that is concerning. People who are infected either you know, with minimum symptoms or maybe symptoms enough to put them in a the hospital who recover and then are doing fine. And then you do an MRI of their heart and you find out they have clear-cut indication of inflammation in the heart, even though they've so-called recovered from COVID-19. So the question is, we don't know what that means. Is that going to be an inconsequential minor inflammatory response that goes away with no sequela? Or will that ultimately lead to arrhythmias, namely heart rhythms that are abnormal, or cardiomyopathy, which means a failure of the heart muscle? These are things we don't know. So we've got to be careful that we don't categorize this into, you know, either you get into the hospital and you get really sick and you die or you survive and then you're okay and everybody else is okay. That might not be the case. So this is a formidable virus that we have to take very seriously, even though, even though a considerable proportion of the people who get infected have no symptoms at all. It's a very perplexing virus. I've been you know, as they say, chasing viral outbreaks going all the way back from the early days in the 80s of HIV AIDS through Ebola and Zika and chikungunya and West Nile and all the others. This is the only one that I've seen 
that is so perplexing and that has such a wide, wide range of symptoms and manifestations with so many people having no trouble at all with it to some people who have underlying comorbidities of getting sick and dying. Look at the numbers. In the United States, we're approaching 200,000 deaths. Uh, that's a lot of deaths for a respiratory-borne virus. You know, it's historic in the sense it's the worst we've seen since the 1918 pandemic. So it's historic. It's the worst that we've seen in the last 102 years. So that's the reason why you keep hearing me and my, my colleagues in public health and scientific and, and medicine to say, in fact, we've got to take this very seriously. We've got to do the scientific things that need to be done to develop a vaccine and develop drugs. And in fact, we've done well, uh, but we can do better. We've developed drugs for advanced disease. We got to get more interventions in early disease to prevent people from getting to the hospital. You know, we're doing better in treating hospitalized patients, but we want to prevent people from having to enter the hospital because of the seriousness of the disease. You mentioned this idea of working together. Recently, uh, the Russian President Putin claimed that uh, the Sputnik V vaccine is safe and effective. I, I wonder, you know, should we trust this? And, and I guess maybe the more important question is how much scientific coordination is going on worldwide to develop an, a really effective vaccine? There's a lot of collaboration and cooperation with companies mm. that are international companies. Like in the United States, there is a lot of activity going on. The United States government is involved with either in the development of, such as one that was developed in collaboration with the company right here at the NIH, in the facilitation of the clinical trials by making clinical trial sites available that we have been developing and funding for so many years, to pre-purchasing doses of vaccines so that if and when, and I, I hope it's going to be when, these vaccines are shown to be safe and effective, you can immediately start vaccinating people because you've taken the financial risk of already producing doses of vaccines from multiple companies. There are six and likely seven companies that are involved in this process of collaborating with the federal government in the sense of the pre-purchasing of the vaccines by the federal government. So that when you do show a vaccine is safe and effective, you won't have to wait for the production of doses. If it's not shown to be safe and effective, then you've wasted a lot of money, but we feel the situation is so serious. When I say we, we mean the federal government, we, the United States of America, that we're willing to take that financial risk. So right now, as we speak, there are three and soon to be four and five and later six vaccine candidates that are entering into advanced phase three trials to determine safety and efficacy. Two of them started on July 27th. One of them was one that was helped developed here at the NIH from the Moderna company. Another was from Pfizer, there's AstraZeneca, there's Johnson & Johnson, there's Novavax. There are a number of companies that are at various stages of advanced development to show safety and efficacy. I would imagine that 
projecting what we think is going to happen, that by the end of this year, November, December, and perhaps even earlier, it could be as early as October. There's no guarantee of that. But I think a more realistic projection would be either November or December, that we will be able to prove that a vaccine is safe and effective. And the reason I feel cautiously optimistic is that the data from the early studies, the phase one and the phase two studies, showed that when you vaccinate normal volunteers with these vaccines, they induce an immune response that is robust and indicative that it likely will protect because it induces what's called a neutralizing antibody or a protein that can block the virus to levels equivalent to, and in some cases even better than what natural infection does. That's no guarantee that you're gonna have an effective vaccine, but it is a pretty good indicator that it is likely that you will. And that's the reason why we are cautiously optimistic that we're on the right track with more than one candidate. Mm -hmm. And we've really got almost a locomotive bearing down at us because we've got cold and flu season coming up. Our audience, you know, those of us who are over age 55, we're among the hardest hit when you look at the graphs for hospitalization. So what advice will you give to those of us over age 55, what to do, what to think about? Start by wearing masks, right? Well, first of all, there are things that you can do. The first of which is to go get your influenza vaccine uh, no later than the end of October. Some of the vaccines are already available. You could get vaccinated, but no later than the end of October. Because what you don't want is the conflating of two respiratory-borne viruses. One of the things that is some good news that we heard from our colleagues in the Southern Hemisphere, in other words, Australians, Argentinians, South Africans, is that in Australia, because during their winter, which as you know, is opposite from our summer, so in Australia, their winter is April to the end of August, the beginning of September, they have found, because they have worn masks, practiced physical distancing, avoided crowds, done many things that they possibly could, outdoors versus indoors, wash their hands, often the way we have been recommending, that they had almost a non-existent influenza season, Hmm. which is an interesting proof of concept Mm -hmm. because it's proven that the same public health measures that can protect you from the spread of SARS coronavirus 2 are also effective in preventing you from getting influenza. That doesn't mean that you should not get your flu shot. You should get your flu shot plus practicing the public health measures that I've mentioned. Great advice, Dr. Fauci. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you again for all that you're doing. We just uh, really value you. And again, our heart goes out to you and your family. We, we wish you the best and please stay well. But I know you're going to be coming up here at the Smithsonian Associates for a live streaming event. We're going to put links up to where we can find out more information about that. But thank you so much for your time today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's always good to be with you. Good to be with you too. Thanks, Dr. Fauci. 
My thanks to Dr. Anthony Fauci for his work and willingness to join us today. My thanks as well to the wonderful Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, our wonderful Not Old Better Show audience. Remember, stay safe, everyone. Practice smart social distancing and talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody.